You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome, everyone, back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined on this fine Friday morning, the last Friday in September, by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Oh, never better. <laughs> well, that's good. It's, you know, everything's good in life, right? I mean, everything's nothing, good. Nothing is wrong. Nothing. Everything is fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... As long as nothing's wrong, everything's good. Yeah, I mean that's really all we can ask in life, yeah. right? You got to. Tr- I mean, there's there's construction going on next door, so okay, okay. I guess that's not great. Yeah, I mean, you just got to try to laugh to keep yourself from crying. That's what I do. Yeah. Ha ha ha. Well, well, here we are. Uh, it's the bye week for UCLA football. Uh, they are three and one. Lost to Utah this past weekend, but we did have them at three and one at this point, Tracy. We did have them there. We did. Um, I don't know if necessarily. Should I start talking now, or were you still doing more intro? Uh, no, I want to talk about this game first. Okay, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I, I, it's game related. Uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people on the forum, and I had thought this too, and it kind of makes sense. It was just a different way. We all thought UCLA would lose. It was just a different way of losing. It was a defensive struggle. If UC had lost 47 to 40, that probably would have jived with our brain better given how UCLA has been the last few Mm -hmm. years. Um, But it lost 14 to 7 in a defensive struggle. And we kind of just all, you know, had a major uh, heart attack over the fact that the offense looked so bad. But yeah. it's the same result. And like I said, I wrote on some story yesterday. I can't remember that far back. Um, that it was that it, we could see a different version of this UCLA team this year than one that's, you know, the defense is the, is the better unit, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than the offense that we've been used to. So it might be just some little bit of adjustment in perspective on what this team is. Maybe. Um, Maybe. So that's what I'm watching, saying. Possibly. So- yeah, so here's here was my big takeaway from that game uh, is if you had told me pregame at any point that Utah would score 14 points, uh, I would have had it as a no-doubter UCLA wins by 10 minimum, right? I mean, I predicted 27-17. That was an under. I, I, I thought the defense was going to be able to shut down that Utah offense. Um, it was a one-dimensional offense, and the defense is clearly... I mean, we'll get to this in a second. Clearly better than last year, whether or not it's um, truly elite, but it's clearly better. Um, but the the offense, 
you know, I mean, my big issue with the offense is if you didn't watch the last three years of Dorian Thompson Robinson growing and getting better in the offense, how was it significantly different from the trash at the beginning of 2018? Really? <laughs> Uh, and that's and that's maybe my biggest issue is that it seems like and OK, some of this was Utah's defense. Uh, Utah's defense is pretty good, um, but RPOs that don't actually have the option, like that don't actually have the running option for uh, the quarterback. Read um, options that don't have the option. Communication on the offensive line that is so bad, it's like they're all rookies. It's like they're all new to the system. Yes. Like there were so there were so many things going on in the offensive line that it's hard to pin down. And I am I am baffled by anyone who says, "Oh no, it wasn't the offensive line." Sincerely, go watch the game again and take off whatever like filtered glasses you have on. There was a a three man rush where Garrett DiGiorgio has a defensive tackle blocked. Uh, Keanu Tanavasa. And then there's a rusher to his right. So he's got two guys on his side. There's one guy for the other four offensive linemen to block, right? But even with that, there's a running back, TJ Harden, who's in to block the guy who's the free rusher around his right side. Garrett DiGiorgio is not aware of where the running back is supposed to be blocking first, which is a problem with his understanding of the scheme, but then, and the play call. But two, he then leaves his defensive tackle to go get that guy. Okay, well, you still have four other guys over here. Josh Carlin then doesn't slide over to pick up that guy. And so you have a defensive tackle getting a free shot on Dante Moore, which leads to his fumble. That was a three-man rush on six-man protection. Uh, and they didn't they didn't get it blocked up. Uh, and that was one of the communication failures. Then if you watch Duke Clemens throughout the game... Uh, virtually every time he tries to climb to the second level, he tries to get a second level block, the guy that he chips or the guy he ignores gets picked up by nobody. Absolutely nobody. And then that guy inevitably makes the play. Uh, so communication between the center and the guards, also not good. So those are communication breakdowns. But then if you watch the left tackle, and not even naming names, if you just watch that position... Throughout the entire game, there was one decent quarter in the third quarter, and then outside of that, it was a disaster. Just an absolute disaster. Bruno Fina struggled in the first half, and Kadir Kunta had, you know, one of the worst sequences you can imagine uh, at the end of the game. So I, I don't know how anybody looks at that and says, oh, yeah, you know, no, the offensive line was not the problem. It was one of the major problems, the other one being play calling to mitigate the problem, but the thing is, the play calling has to compensate for what is an obvious major issue, which is that offensive line. And, and, they are yeah. they are having massive breakdowns, and they were having massive breakdowns against NC Central. The difference is Utah's just better. But what is what are the defensive lines going to look like going forward? Are they going to look more like NC Central and Coastal Carolina, or are they going to look more like Utah? Well, that that's that's an interesting. So right now, like what I just said at the at the top. We might see a different version of a UCLA team than we're used to. One that's more that that wins games, stays in games with the defense, and ekes it out offensively. Just the exact flip of what we've seen the last couple of years. But why that not might not be the case? Looking at UCLA's schedule, they are going to see some really good offenses. I, I, you, you could go on a limb and say a handful of the best offenses in the country. Right? 
I mean, next. So next week against Washington State, uh, go go look at Washington State's numbers, everybody, because you might have thought that game was one thing. It's a it's a different thing. And and USC's offense is the best offense in the country yeah. right now. Um, so they're gonna they're gonna face some off Arizona's offense pretty good pretty good even though it's uh, Jay Delora. Um and then as we go through the schedule the defenses will get worse. Um, Utah might end up being the best defense UCLA faces. So it's going to be very, very interesting. The uh, UCLA's offense might get a little bit better, and UCLA's defense might get a little bit worse. If they could just both level out, Dave, like what have we always been saying? If we got two top 50 units, they might be dangerous. If they could just both level out at about 40th in the country... They might get to nine wins. Yeah. So I, I guess so with my um, with my lens on that uh, with my uh, my glasses on that I'm saying that you know UCLA's offense is looking quite a bit like that early 2018. The difference is the defense so far. Um, it is quite a bit better than what uh, UCLA had that year. Um, and if you go back and look at that schedule. There were a lot of games that could have turned if UCLA simply just had a better defense. Um, Stanford, that comes to mind. Arizona State, that comes to mind. And it was a tougher schedule. So I guess it's just the, you know, it's it's the kind of that classic trope about UCLA not having a good offense and a good defense at the same time. Um, And, you know, the the thing with the defense is, to your point, going to be facing some some greater challenges um now there is a benefit to ucla this year that i think people are you know still kind of uh, discounting a little bit which is ucla and usc both get to play both arizona schools and both bay area schools um arizona's offense has not been as good as it was last year through the early going because Jaden delora is playing a lot worse than last year and they lack uh, a deep explosive threat like dorian singer but they're still pretty good but the rest of those are all disasters of various uh, levels uh, and offensively are kind of muddled at best. So UCLA will get those four schools still on the schedule, which should should equal four wins um, with the caveat that at Arizona could be a challenge. Uh, it's really Washington State, Oregon State, uh, Colorado, which has a passing attack, even if it doesn't have a full complete offense, and then USC. Um, and those are the ones that will actually challenge this defense. Yeah, and but... we'll see. I think I think next week is going to give us a lot of information about this defense because it'll be the first real explosive passing attack that UCLA will have had to contend with because Coastal Carolina is turning out to be kind of what I thought they were going to be, which is taking a major step back because they've changed offensive systems to some, you know, BSE pro style nonsense garbage that's not very good and makes everyone in the offense look bad and if you just go by um yards per play washington state right now 30th in the country usc's number two behind washington thank thank the lord they're not playing washington but oregon state is solid at 14th in the country oregon state's still they're not necessarily translating it to points but they're able to move the ball and as you said there's always we got it. We got to keep. We got to keep our eye on the ball of that at Arizona game because even though 
they have a very unpredictable quarterback. Arizona's offense is is top twenty five in the country right now for yards per play. So they will be facing some some good offenses, and I do expect the UCLA defense to kind of settle in a little. But don't wouldn't you say? Don't you expect the UCLA offense to look to improve as the as the year goes on? Yeah, I mean, I I think the offensive line is clearly. I think there are some personnel deficiencies for sure, but I also think the communication breakdowns should improve. I mean, we haven't we haven't really seen that level of kind of just WTF going on on the offensive line under Chip Kelly. So I would imagine that stuff is going to get better. You know, as these guys work together more, there's going to be fewer and fewer breakdowns. Um, but at the same time, uh, there is a talent deficiency. So I think they're going to get better offensively. Um, and I think they're going to look better even next week against Washington State than they did last week against Utah because of the difference in defense. I just don't know about, you know, we kind of took it as a given preseason that this was going to be a top 20, top 25 offense. And I'm not necessarily seeing that at this point. Yeah. Um, that gave me a lot of pause against Utah. And I'm going to need to see them show show something the next two weeks against, uh, I'll call Washington State a credible defense. They're not great, but they're they're solid. And then Oregon State, which actually has a, a pretty good defense. If they can put up points and not look completely snowed under like they did against Utah, then you know we can start to you know get a kind of more stable vision of what this offense is. So Duke Clem, uh, the other offensive linemen. I mean, let's, those are we didn't really expect that much from uh, Brutofina, um, uh, Josh Carlin. We did expect Duke Clemens to kind of carry that offensive line. Uh, he was near all Pac-12 level last year. If you really yeah. watched him, he he was he was exceptional last year. Um, yep. There are some really head scratching breakdowns, like just not uh, in communication, but from my from my eyes, it's also physical. He seemed he seemed stronger. Able to physically match up better last year? Am I missing? Would you agree? Um, probably. I mean, I, I I haven't noticed the physical nearly as much. I think he is. He's my my read on it, and I don't know if this is scheme related or him related, but it's trying to do too much, like trying to get. Uh, like get these elaborate blocks going when like the basically the initial line of defense isn't blocked up. Um, and I don't know how much optionality there is with their blocking schemes. I know there's some element of that where they can get a little ambitious and go from like a, you know, get downfield a little bit more and try to block things up down the lane. But um, I, I think there's a little bit kind of getting out over his skis a little bit. And I don't know if that is, their misassessment of their offensive line talent that they have, you know, better guard play than they do that can pick up some of the stuff that he leaves behind or if he's getting over ambitious. Um, but I think a lot of it has been mental mistakes and communication failures. Like there've been uh, uh, Osgood cited this a couple of times and you noticed it uh, again on that one play against NC central, but just missing a gap blitzers, like just not even like picking them up, not even acknowledging right. that they exist. That's not, snap. T- that's not taking it to another level. That's just missing guys. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's just a mental mistake. And that's the part where it's like, 
you know, there've been people posting on the board. Was John Gaines calling the, the, you know, the blocking when he was at guard last year? Um, I don't know. Uh, Cause it does seem like they're just doing kind of this, uh, just making these more egregious mistakes that are kind of purely mental uh, that we didn't necessarily see a ton of last year. Um, you know, I mean, it's hard to remember how many free runners they got at Dorian Thompson Robinson last year. I don't think it was nearly as many as we've seen so far, but, and this is a point that you keep making, those plays also weren't connecting with big sacks on Dorian Thompson Robinson last year because of his um, escapability, because of his speed, but also because of his know-how, um, you know, and this is, a, I don't want to completely absolve the idea of having a true freshman at quarterback being somewhat to blame here, because Dorian Thompson-Robinson, if that same blitzer came at him at NC Central, he would have just rolled to his right and understood that his legs can carry him way past any FCS defender, um, you know, and, and against Utah, you know, there was that one, I don't think too many of those sacks could have been avoided just because of the nature of what the offensive line was doing. Um, but there was one on that final series where he kind of uh, just runs to the wrong space that wouldn't have happened with Dorian. He would have, you know, floated out to the right rather than trying to step up. Um, but that's that's the stuff where a true freshman back there and one without necessarily the athletic gifts that Dorian had does hurt the offensive line's numbers and the overall impression of the line. I, I think that point should be underlined a little. I know I've made it before, but I want to just reemphasize. Watching UCLA's offense over the last couple of years and how effective it's been, I, I was always in my mind making a little note that, you know, wow, if DTR hadn't uh, escaped, and, and you're right, that there's there's... There, there are certain plays where you just said, well, a more experienced quarterback would have chosen this, you know, another hole. But there were also times in, when DTR was just, even if he made the right choice, it was tough. And he just was so exceptional athletically that he yeah. got, that he ran for the first down. Um, and just over the you know last couple of years, I've been saying, wow, what's this going to be like when you don't have that? Because they relied, I thought the offense so often really relied on that. Um, I think that masked some of the issues with Chip Kelly's offense. And now we're not seeing it. You made the preseason point, which was a valid one, that maybe Dante Moore will make up for it in other ways, throwing a little bit more accurately maybe than than yeah. DTR would. And, and uh, having probably better natural instincts in throwing the ball, right? Of of being able to to make a play throwing the ball. Um, yeah. But we haven't seen that, and it's because he's eight. He's an eighteen year old freshman. But I, I think that is just an element we're getting a perspective on, it, and I think that's I think that's a, a a thing we all have to keep in mind. One other thing that I wanted that I've been thinking about, and and this kind of leads into it when we're talking about the offensive line. Even though there are there have been mental breakdowns, we can you can also say that that off this offensive line is not is just not as talented as the ones we've seen yeah. recently. Um, and why why is that? Why is UCLA left with a deficit in talent on offensive line? And you have to come to the conclusion it's because of recruiting. 
Um, it just has not recruited well on the offensive line, uh, specifically in high school, for for a few years. Um, the guys that have plugged into the starting lineup are high school recruits for the most part, except for one transfer. And they had not been able to really crack too much playing time before this. And now they're thrust into starting roles. And a lot of the opinion before was, well, they're, they just developed or they're, they're now to the point where they're starter level. But you made the point that you don't think these are power five level starters. Um, yeah. So it's, I think every, whatever side of the fence you're on, in the Chip Kelly argument, I think we can kind of come around. I think everyone should be able to meet halfway and say, recruiting has not been good on the offensive line. Then where the real swing and well, that's a swing and miss. I'm not going to say this other one is bigger, but it's it's equally so. UCLA has been relying on the transfer portal to fix some of its deficits at certain positions it did it. It's done it successfully on the offensive line. It went out and got three transfers that, given what we know that was on the depth chart, we assumed the three transfers would all start. And so far, only one has. That that has really hurt this offense. That they UCLA did not go out and get power five level transfers as starters on its offensive line. That's the core. That's the core issue here right now. If we're talking about what's happening with the offensive line, and that's really something to start contemplating. I'm I'm preparing a story. Not done with it. Want to think about it more. But really, what's happened is so. It's a really quick little history lesson. Chip Kelly comes to UCLA first three years. Doesn't necessarily do that well. High school recruiting isn't very good. If you left him to his high school recruiting, probably you don't see the two, eight, the eight and four and the nine and four, right? You probably don't see those seasons. If he was left with the talent he was getting from the high school ranks, they would not have had those two seasons that last two recent seasons. It's pretty easy to conclude. I think everyone can. He dramatically benefited from the transfer portal. If the transfer portal hadn't become a thing, or even that it was starting to go that way, like Zach Charbonnet, that he got Zach Charbonnet, just the talent level that he got. Now, I'm, I'm talking across the board on the entire team, but I'm also concentrating on the offensive line. The Now, you're saying, was it just an aberration? Was how good they did before in the transfer portal the aberration? Was maybe not how good they did in the 2023 transfer class the aberration? Uh, we don't know. We don't have enough data. We only have really two full years of of uh, recruiting the transfer portal fully. But there is one bit of data to take under consideration. What did change was NIL became a thing in the 2023 transfer recruiting uh, environment. UCLA was just getting its NIL program up and, and going at the time. Uh as you remember, as we were reporting, we gave you the inside scoop that UCLA missed on some transfers, specifically some offensive line transfers, because it, it got just blatantly, it got outbid in NIL. NIL is a thing that's going to be an even bigger factor going forward in transfer recruiting. And 
unless Congress sweeps in and really <laughs> decides to regulate NIL, I don't see how the NCAA is going to do it. Um, I don't even see how Congress would do it. But uh, the NIL is here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future, at least through UCLA moving to the Big Ten. So that's kind of the basis for my story that I'm kind of formulating in my mind right now. How can UCLA move forward in transfer portal recruiting in the era of NIL? And I think that's going to be very, very challenging for the football program. And one little uh, thing to add, the football program has not been greatly supportive in raising NIL money. What it could do within NCAA rules, it hasn't been near as helpful as the basketball program. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, yeah, I guess that's that's the point that I'd like to underscore is if if I'm if I sound a little bit um, uh, more skeptical of um, Chip Kelly, it's not just, you know, the result of one game. It's um the the it kind of the fact that they don't have offensive line help from the transfer portal that it hasn't uh, uh, borne out that way and then you look at the overall you know transfer portal and what are the odds UCLA is going to be successful recruiting that you need a head coach who is going to be not just receptive to the idea of NIL but and this is just the realities of it going golfing schmoozing donors. Doing the whole kit and caboodle of uh, donor outreach. It was important before. It's now absolutely positively one of the like lifeblood aspects of a program. You absolutely need donor support. It is in- essential to the process. The process you talk about. The process that is you know what you believe in. Acquiring talent now demands donor outreach. It now demands uh, those people feeling invested in the program. So that idea of like making fun of donors, all the, all they want is, um, you know, they want a little attention. They want to, you know, go to tennis. Yeah, they want to go to golf and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's now real, like real, real. Like it's not just, oh, they'll get you a nice thing to put in the facility. No, Um with you know their their uh, money backing, it creates a better uh, NIL uh, situation for UCLA. 
So it's essential. And, um, and what's really, yeah, we're you're we're nailing this, <laughs> and you just clarified it even more. And I'm going to try to do it even more. So Chip Kelly, the way he is, I mean, there are little variations of this, but it's you know his his opinion is, I'm going to coach the team. That's my job. I'm going to coach the team. I'm going to do. I'm going to work hard, do it well, and. He hasn't, he's been a little neglectful when it came to uh, promoting donor relations. Now, before, three years ago, there were arguments being made of, well, why does he have to do that? Why is that necessary? Now, that is a little naive, but let's just go with that for a minute. Okay, the argument before was, why does that directly lead to his benefit as a coach beyond resources and facilities and all of that? There isn't a direct link. Well, now the way this whole thing has evolved from the transfer portal and NIL, there is now a direct link. If you didn't have relationships with donors, the donors are the ones that are supplying NIL money and the NIL money is what's supplying your talent. That is a direct straight line from donor relations to talent on, that you are coaching. So opportunity missed for the last five years of, of promoting relationships with donors. If they had all been schmoozed by Chip Kelly, they'd all be on board just to, to move right to NIL. You could say that that has not happened. That's not the case. The NIL collective is really out on its own, trying to schmoo, trying to find donors. Um, if they were all teed up, I get that golf little reference there. If they had all been teed up and schmoozed for the last five years, it would have been a lot easier. So, wow, that is something that when you talk about the saying could come back and bite you in the ass. This is. This is the primary example. Yeah. And so, I mean, I did some, I made some tweets this week, Tracy, about, um, you know, just kind of taking stock 60 games in. And it's just, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to look. I mean, you did the great story yesterday where you're kind of. um, uh, Well, there's so much silliness on both sides. I just had to bring a little bit of real fact. But one of the points you made is that you can't just simply discount the start of the tenure. Um, you can you can throw in the necessary context, but you can't just discount the idea because a lot of coaches, a lot of coaches over the years have been faced with similar situations. Um, you know, Kalen DeBoer did not uh, inherit a program nearly as bereft of talent as UCLA, but he did inherit a program fresh off of four and eight. Um, and the and- culture, I can tell you, because I have some insight into Washington, the culture was bad. It yes. was not good. That needed to be cleaned up at least, as, I'd say, more so than the UCLA culture. Yeah. Yeah. And and he went 11-2 and two in year one. And yes, did he benefit slightly from a slightly easy schedule? Sure. But he went 11-2. and two. Um, Chip Kelly, I mean, it was essentially three full seasons of scuffling. And then, and this is the point I wanted to make this week, is that and this is the part that legitimately is frustrating post-Utah. His ability to beat good teams is absolutely still in question um, with anything like reasonable consistency. Um, and this is the part that I think everyone should... So 
they went eight and four and they went nine and four, right? But if you look at the the teams they beat and the teams they lost to, it's essentially Chip Kelly benefited from two of the weakest schedules in UCLA history. And I'm not being I'm not exaggerating there. Uh, if you go into SRS, if you look at Sports Reference and you look at the SOS, uh, two of the weakest since 1954, incidentally, the only UCLA National Championship, but two of the weakest since then. Um, and in 2021, I know people made this point at the time, but just they they didn't beat a winning team en route to eight and four. Last year, they beat three winning teams. They beat South Alabama, they beat Utah, and they beat Washington. So that's good. But in their last seven, in their last ten games against winning programs, they're three and seven. That's all in the last two years. So just that alone, right there, that's a that's a concern because even when Carl Durrell was falling apart, even when Jim Mora was falling apart, they were doing about as well, if not better, in beating winning programs. Um, and that's just. If you're going to be the program that I think people like on both sides of this particular divide want UCLA to be, you have to win those games. Um, and Utah, again, I think we're singing the same song, which is, oh, but for this, but for that, but for this, but also main overarching thing, if it had simply been coached better, uh, I mean, you do a speed option to the right side when you're in field goal range. Um and it's just, well, did you have to do that? Was that was that the option you wanted to go with with your true freshman quarterback who's never done that at the college level? Um, like who hasn't who hasn't really run the ball at all? Uh, was that was that truly the thing you wanted to do? And he made the point again yesterday. Well, it was blocked up. If it had been blocked up, it would have been perfect because we knew the coverage they were in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to acknowledge the personnel you have in the game. And that goes back as far as uh, what year was it where Keegan Jones was the running back in on fourth and one, and he doesn't get it because it was Keegan Jones and it wasn't Joshua Kelly or Demetri Felton or whoever it was at the time. Um, and it's just these kind of blunders that are just like, did that – Okay, yes, you, you got yourself in a position where it was a one-score game, where one thing going the right way, but could you have coached it better where it wasn't a one-score game, where it was instead, you know, UCLA comfortably beating a team that was down its starting quarterback, down, like, its two starting running backs, down its starting tight end, down several defensive players? Like, could you have just coached that differently so that you didn't get into a single-score game? And that's the part that continues to be frustrating. That's the part that's going to limit UCLA against good programs consistently is these kind of blundering errors that don't need to happen. Well, it's really, I completely agree. And interesting too, if we try to psychologically analyze Chip Kelly, he's been, uh, after the game when I asked him the questions, the post-game interview, and then in these interviews, the interview yesterday from Brock, he, he, I'm reading him as being very defensive about this. Yes. Um, and after the game, he did, even though he wouldn't admit about the play calling when I asked him specifically, but he did say, we all need to get better, and that includes the coaching staff, which is, the, I mean, whether that's a standard thing that you say – that's still that's still the thing to say. I mean, that's the classy thing to say. You're admitting that you might have done some things wrong too. It's just not on the players. I was I was stunned 
by his explanation that that speed pitch, uh, a speed option, wasn't blocked up. Because that was squarely putting the fault of that play's success on the players. As opposed to what you just said of, of so many other things in that game of play calling and game plan that you could point to as, as culpable. Um, I was, I was, he, he, uh, sometimes coaches don't, aren't, uh, uh, candid. Wow. That, that was the most kind of stunning thing to me in that interview, uh, beyond just his general defensiveness that he actually, he blamed players. I, I don't think he usually does that too much. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was weird because so Ben asked him, is there a play calling element that can help with? The pressure. It was essentially a, a repeat of the question you asked after the game, but we needed to ask it again after he'd seen the film. And he's and he basically said, "Yeah, yeah, you can look at it and see a million different things." Um, but it was never like, "Oh, yeah, absolutely," you know. And I'm struck by, you know, people have a have an interesting impression of Deion Sanders, right? But his the tone he struck after Oregon was so different and so much more. I'm secure in myself, and I'm secure in saying. Oh, we need to start with the coaches and literally every single coach. We're going to do assessments of all of us, and that'll happen before we even assess the players. Um, and that is, I mean, I think you almost always have to have that mentality after a loss if you're a if you're a coach. Um, that needs to be the mentality. And I'm, you know, I don't know how much of it is he's just generally uncomfortable with the media, and so he you know falls into some of these things when things are not going particularly well. Um, but it's just, yeah. I mean, if you go back and read the transcript, everyone, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, was there a miscommunication on the interception? Did J Mike run the wrong route? Yeah. It was just a miscommunication on that play. How about it was a bad play call? I mean, I, and this is, I I don't know how many options Dante has on that play. So I I don't want to say that, but he was throwing into a situation where there were three defenders and okay, and if it's not a miscommunication, it's um, Dante Moore didn't see the, the the dropping linebacker. But also, how did that linebacker have your offense like so memorized backwards and forwards that he knew where that play was going before Dante had even looked that direction? Um, there, just, there's some things here where you can take ownership without even necessarily, you know, feeling a ton of heat for it. I mean... It's the classic thing where, like, oh, yeah, we just need to call better plays because uh, that, you know, that, that could have been picked off by three different guys. So that's just, that's, just, that's just on me. And nobody would talk crap about him for that. That's just, oh, okay, great, great for him. Um, but, no, it's a lot of this stuff. And, like, the speed option play, I mean, he's basically throwing Jake Wiley under the bus, which Jake Wiley had a bad block, yes. Uh, but was it the right read by your freshman quarterback? Shouldn't he have pitched it to Carson Steele? Because that was my read on that play. But after the game, he said uh, he made the right, or, or I think it was during the game when the TV person asked him about it, he said he made the right decision um, to hold on to it, uh, which I, I can't imagine that's true because he would have been blocked. He would have been tackled for a one-yard gain anyway. But even, I mean, shouldn't he have pitched it? And if not, uh, you really wanted the play to be on the feet of your freshman quarterback who's not, really a runner. Exactly. Um, and it's just yeah. all these things where it's just like, 
couldn't I mean, I mean couldn't you at least acknowledge that there was there there could have been a different way to go there? You know, it's funny because I I've always thought about this with coaches and I I've, I've talked with football and basketball coaches and asked them, you know, when I have them alone and, you know, off the record. When you're being interviewed, what's the mindset for sometimes just not taking uh, ownership of uh, something that didn't uh, like didn't work out well in a game? Uh, why not take ownership? And at least a lot of assistant coaches feel head coaches won't do it because head coaches' egos are just too big; <laughs> they can't do it. And then they do. There's a sub. There's a sub excuse that they don't in recruiting they don't want to get it out there that they think they're not a good coach that recruits might read that as wow i don't want to go there where the coach isn't is is you know screwing up all the time right but what you brought up about deon sanders wow i i you're exactly right i mean first off take the recruiting online doesn't the recruit look at that and go wow that's a guy i want to play for well, and he talks constantly, constantly about, and this is not ever going to be Chip Kelly's bag and it doesn't need to be, but the value of saying, you know, I love these kids, you know, he's like a son to me. He says this all the time uh, and it is kind of discordant with some of the um, kicking guys out of the program without even knowing their names, but he <laughs> says this and that stuff sells and what the general tenor of what he says in these things coheres with that. Like there's yeah. no discordance with like, he's, he, you know, he talks about Travis Hunter and he's like, Travis Hunter told me he wants to play in the game. And I told him, no, you're not going to play in the game because you've got a lacerated liver, dude. Um, but like all this stuff where it's just, you're presenting a more confident image and you're presenting a, an image of a coach who's going to, protect his players at the the level that a college player wants to be protected, that a college player wants to be treated. Because these are, I mean, whatever your opinion on 18-year-olds, these are still kids in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, Chip Kelly wants to run it a little bit like a pro program, and that's, you know, it attracts a certain level of athlete, and it attracts, you know, it, it attracts some good ones. Um, but it also, I think, can rub people the wrong way. And then just to finish off about that interview, um, on our theory that he was pretty defensive, Ben Bolch asked him about Colson Yankoff as a returner and wasn't challenging at all. Just asked him what were some of the what are some of the assets that Colson Yankoff brings to kickoff returner. Chip Chip's chippiness was was really apparent. I mean, he kind of he if if Ben hadn't diffused it, it it might have got you were there. You tell me, was it? Yeah, so I thought he was I thought he was just clearly joking right at the beginning, but then it became obvious he wasn't joking. Like he brought up the Jake so when it became obvious he wasn't joking was when he said you have this bias against big kick returners and I remember you asking me about Jake Bobo. Like he kept on with it. Um and it's so funny for like so many reasons cuz first you say you don't pay attention to the media, right? That does not line up with remembering a and at the time, it was also an innocuous question, an innocuous question about 6'5 Jake Bobo returning punts over a year ago. Um, and you're not allowed to remember that while also saying you don't pay attention to anything from the media. Like those don't those don't line up. But it became obvious he was serious. You know, you questioned us why Jake Bobo was deep on punt one time. You're a height guy. 
Uh, and then Ben said, yeah, and you changed that because he legitimately did. Jake Bobo caught, I think, three punts, and I think they might have all been in that one game. Maybe one was later, but pretty much all right then. And he said, we didn't change it. We just, you know, he was one of the three punt returners. But anyone that's <laughs> over six foot as a punt returner or a kick returner is persona non grata in your eyes, so I don't understand it. The best kick returner in the NFL could be the guy in Atlanta who's gigantic is and a tremendous player. So, um, and then Ben was like, uh, you know, he always looked amazing in coverage. First trying to diffuse it with like, hey, he's looked really good on this part of special teams. Um, but then he brought it back to the kick return stuff uh, from Chip. I, but then, yeah. uh, but then Ben kind of saved it by making a joke out of it when uh, Chip suggested that he could, you know, if I put you blocked it back there, you still wouldn't be able to get anything. Uh, and you know, Ben helped to save it by saying, "I'm multi-positional now." Yeah, I think but it's it an was example, uh, example of just how defensive he is this this week. Um, about well, and we were yeah. asking. I mean, the thing is, like, we didn't, and this was. I was gonna ask him a question about defense towards the end, uh, but then you know. I didn't want to. Yeah. No, um, I get it. <laughs> and it's it's just uh we asked him a lot of questions about the offense because I think if you have a big problem from the that game, it's the offense. And I think he got progressively more and more kind of not agitated, but a little bit more defensive as the thing went on, culminating with that Colson Yankov thing, because I think it felt like a lot of criticism. So so maybe this is my optimistic positive spin on this. It it's not that he's obtuse to what happened against Utah. He's actually recognizing it and he's defensive about it. But the key takeaway is he's recognizing it. So maybe, maybe we can all take this as an indication that there might be some adjustments offensively. Um, that maybe so. He'll start a game plan. He'll maybe game, call a game with the realization he has an 18-year-old quarterback and not just cookie cutter plug him into a situation and hope he performs at the level of uh was it sixth year dorian thompson robinson did dorian make his sixth year fifth fifth god yeah he was here a long time and it was last three years are pretty good anyway so yeah um and the one thing i will say is an adjustment they made um increasingly over the course of that year to the point where we thought it was going to be like their full offense by the end of the year is that they did a lot more of the check with me um, where they would get up to the line of scrimmage and they would do that, like, you know, prairie dog, look over to the, the sideline and Meerkats. then get the new play call in. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, that helped the offense. And I think, you know, maybe they didn't think they needed to do it nearly as much with uh, how advanced Dante Moore is, but maybe more of that um, will be kind of the order of the day going forward. And, for and, and RPOs are hard. You have to really watch closely to, to see if it's an RPO. Uh, it goes by formation. It goes by pre-snap read. It goes by it goes by a lot of stuff. But my perception is there haven't been a lot of RPOs called. No, they're not giving them a ton of options. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and and that's you know that's a tricky thing for a co- coach. You know, do you kind of uh, relinquish the keys a lot more to a true freshman at quarterback? And I think you know at some level you almost have to. So there you go. There, that's our assessment. And that kind of aptly captures where we are all, as you say, like football fans, don't you think? These, Yeah, these next two games are super important. I, I think that that is maybe the uh, next week's game against Washington State is as close to a must win as I can remember. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, in that story, I wrote a lot about what are the expectations for the program. Um, I, I don't know about y'all, but uh, eight win seasons, seven win seasons, th- those, those are not fulfilling seasons for me, especially when you're fifth or sixth in the Pac-12. That, that's, no, no, no. They're, they're your vegetables. Yeah, I, yeah. Exactly. I don't mind. Like I don't mind a, a, a going seven and eight as your like kind of just baseline. Okay, that's what you did that year. I mean, that's fine. But the culmination year cannot be like. Look, the schedules are a lot different from, and people say this all the time. UCLA has never won eleven games in a season. The schedules are a lot different now. There's a lot more games. The reason like Tommy Prothrow never won 11 games is because he barely ever played 11 games. Like it's just, it's, it's nonsense. Um, UCLA's won 10, you know, they, they won it twice with Jim Mora and people keep telling me how bad of a coach Jim Mora was like they won 10 with Carl Durrell. Uh, and that was in a 12 game season. Right. Since they've so, gone to 12 games, which is actually pretty recent. UCLA's won had two 10 win seasons. Yeah. And they they won ten in two thousand five when it was an eleven game regular season. Like they're, you can do it. And uh, to have the culmination year be nine and four, like I don't know, man. Like that's not great. And it's just not about record. It's also about it's also about competing for a Pac twelve championship. It's also about it's also about. I know people don't put a value on the bowl game, but what the bowl game does do is is set the tone for the rest of the off season. Uh, you had to come away from that Pittsburgh game with the way that game finished. What else could you have but a bad taste in your mouth? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's significant. That that's really important. I, I you know, that's gotta have some impact on season tickets um, for the next season. So all of it counts. And at this point, given what what we think is an average expectation for the UCLA football program, um, given how many games are played in a season now, and that we're six years in to Chip Kelly, an eight-win season and finishing fifth or sixth or seventh in the Pac-12 is not a successful season. I mean, for all the Chip Kelly defenders, I'm just going to say this. If you're saying he's been building and building and getting better and better, all okay, let's just even concede that. Then six years in, six years, isn't it time to have that defining season of at least 10 wins, competing for a Pac-12 championship, going to a significant bowl game and winning? I mean, yeah. we used to expect that. And now we're not. So it this it's time right here. It's time that it happened. Yep. Yep. Hey Tracy. Yes, Dave. Basketball media days in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, you're saying that given the frustration with UCLA football, you're going to try to get a little bit of joy that basketball media day, Pac-12 media day is in oh, 10 days. We get to hear from Mick again. Good old Mick. <laughs> uh, you nice? know what? I can talk a little bit about, I mean, I wrote what was happening in practice and, and practice has starts tomorrow. Real practice starts tomorrow. So it's been workouts that they're able to do a little uh, team stuff. 
in the workouts. But again, I, I've heard again recently that not to say he's going to be an All-American, but Bur- yeah, I'm going to say Burke, Dave, Yeah, fill it in. Is really good? No, Burke, what? Burke, Buyuk Tunjil. Has been very good in practice. Um, and I'm also hearing that Dylan Andrews is is good is is getting better and better and really stepping into his role. And Jan Vide has been looking good also at guard. So, yeah, that's exciting. It's going to be very fun to listen to Mick talk about Burke and Adaimara. Really, for the first time after watching them in a practice workout. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basketball. Basketball. Yeah. It'll be very interesting. This is going to be interesting going into the basketball season. When we get all the preseason rankings, the there's gonna there's a wide range of people who do these rankings, obviously. There are gonna be some people who are just completely oblivious that UCLA uh, got these international prospects that easily would make UCLA at least a, a top 25 preseason team. Um, and they don't see it. They just, they're, they just don't even, either they heard, they haven't heard it at all or they heard the names and they don't get the significance because they, they just don't know it that well. Or it's the people who say, you know, they're international recruits. They, I see all the hype, but I haven't heard it. So I refuse to, to really give them value or, or the people actually going to do some homework and, you know, rank UCLA 18th. You know, we don't know about these international recruits, but from what we can, you know, we're just like a value. So many of the guys who are doing rankings have never seen the domestic high school recruits and they're basing rankings on that. So do a little homework, look at the international guys and we'll see, this is, I'm laying down the gauntlet to see, which guys who do preseason college basketball rankings are going to actually figure in UCLA's complete recruiting class? No, I think they're going to be under the radar. I think it's going to be, I think like Mick will probably talk to John Rothstein off the record and be like, look, if you rank us, I'm going to shiv you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think, I think he loves the idea of being able to play like that kind of mentality with these guys going into this first year. And then, honestly, if they're, like, a little bit stinky to start the year, I think it's going to even fuel that even more. I think he's going to be super excited heading into January. Sure, but there are going to be national writers who aren't going to be threatened to be shivved and are going, maybe, are going to be able to... I think you underestimate Mick's ability to shiv people. (laughs) Okay. I mean, if you really want to have that out there, you can have that out there. Look, I mean, look. you're just talking the micro that should be in Peaky Blinders, is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. just saying. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that'll be fun. It'll be in Vegas. Tracy's probably going. Right? I am going, going for 24 hour turnaround. Hell yeah, baby! Yeah, you can do a all lot. Right. You can do a lot of damage in Las Vegas in 24 hours. You don't need to tell me that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, that's a cheerful little episode of this show for you. Uh, we'll be back again next week with a preview of Washington State. Enjoy the football tonight and this weekend, everyone, and we'll talk to you again next time. See you later. CBS Friday, TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free.
lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. You speak. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.